Teenagers, the show where we subject Gossip Girl and Glee, and in this episode, just Glee, to a level of scrutiny that these shows definitely deserve. I'm Matthew Rather. I'm here with Jordan Stokes. Hey, Jordan. I'm glad you're back. It's good to be back, Matt. It's very it's good to be back. Very good. It's Well, it's very good to have you back. It's better. It's better to have you back, I'm sure, than it is for you to be back. <laughs> <laughs> I get the better end of the deal. I, I have no doubt. Um, you know, you can reach us at TFT Podcast at overthinkingit.com or call 20 Fat Jog 01. That's 203-285-6401. Call or text if you want to, um, to say something. Now, we haven't. Uh, Ryan and I have been doing mostly Gossip Girls, so we are backtracking uh, at least three weeks on Glee to the Grilled Cheeses episode, to the Duets episode, and to the Rocky Horror uh glee show episode um I, and i i think we may go back to uh the britney spears episode and even to coach beast um perhaps uh in in the course of talking who knows where we'll go yeah. we'll go all over the place it's a but it's a uh, it's a glee stravaganza and if you're our waiting... podcast is a wonderland <laughs> If you're waiting to hear about Gossip Girl, well, we'll be back with the next episode. I want to say one word about the the regularity of episodes. It's uh, now that the academic year is started, um, in some capacity or other, uh, Jordan, Ryan, and I are all involved in you know the academic establishment. So uh, during the school year, it is very hard to find times to record. We do it as much as we can and thank you for being patient between episodes. I get emails at, at TFT Podcast at overthinkingit.com saying you know, where the hell is the the, um, the next episode and uh, all I can say is we're working on it. We're always, we're always um, going back and forth trying to do it. But anyway, less talky-talky, more podcasty-podcasty. Jordan, you started, uh, <laughs> as we were talking before we started recording, you said it's been a rough couple of weeks for Glee. Uh, you want to say something about what, what you mean by that well okay yeah i the the reason why we talk about glee on this website is that we had a couple of our writers who really really did not like it right and then the gauntlet was thrown and we went back and forth in the comment threads a while so i'm I'm kind of sad that i'm beginning to find myself complaining about glee a lot yeah and i'm waiting for someone to tell me that i'm missing the point but you know it's it's not like Glee is doing a lot of things very different, and I'm not going to complain about the things that it's always done that are sort of bad practice for standard TV writing. It's just that it stopped doing a lot of the things that I used to like about it. Like, I feel like these past few weeks, all of the musical numbers, almost without exception, are numbers that the Glee Club is performing within the show. And very often, it's, they're not even performing it for an interesting reason. It's like they have an assignment and the various students take turns coming into the room and singing in front of their friends. It's sort of like, you know, here's my homework assignment. We're now going to do, uh, I don't know, a Sammy Davis Jr. song or something like that. Yeah. And I, what I was so excited about about the show originally was the way that they sort of uh, blurred the lines between music that was actually happening and music that people that was happening in people's heads and uh, music that people sang and music that people just related to very personally, the way that teenagers often do and people in general often do relate to music very personally. So I miss that, right? 
Um, the, the, you're talking about the, and you wrote about this too, the, the um, split between public and private uh, significance with pop songs because yeah. really, they straddle the line between being something that's popular that everybody knows and also something that can have a very kind of intensely personal meaning for a, uh, an individual, especially a teenager when you're, you know, um, kind of intense when your personality is at its most intense anyway. Uh, right, and that sometimes these these lines got blurred between public and private, and that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, and and now it seems to be just all public, or at least I mean that's the impression I get. I'm sure that someone will point out like, well, well, actually, you forgot about this number, and I probably did. But the fact that I'm even able to forget that uh, shows that they've been dropping that particular ball, right? Yeah, I, well, the, I mean, the Britney Spears episode, the numbers are hallucinations. Right. The Britney Spears episode is a really interesting thing because I remember the last time that we talked about Glee, I feel like you complained about the dancing. You said like that was what they apparently don't have time to do on a, on a you know, whatever their schedule is, is choreograph really interesting dance numbers. And it was bitching, right? Yeah, yeah, but what they let fall in that episode is everything else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So apparently it was the can... Heather. It was the Heather Morris show. It was like, yeah. oh, she is a fantastic dancer, and she really is. Um, yeah, and and also it was like um, the you know let let the cameraman and the set designer have some fun too, right? The the shots of I think it was Santana sort of rolling around in a big pile of leaves. Like, those weren't as impressive as technical dancing, but as kind of choreography for cinematographer and, uh, and singing actor, they were kind of awesome in a way that a lot of the stuff, you know, isn't necessarily always, right? Yeah. Um, and it reminded me of the mattress sequence, uh, that jump song, right? Where, like, there's nothing that they're doing in terms of dancing that's great, but it's an utter joy to watch and sure. kinetic in the way that dance is. And you know what? I'm fine with them doing an episode like that. In, in some ways, it's actually kind of an interesting piece of meta-commentary about uh, what the point of dance pop is, right? Sure. Like, there is no narrative there, but it's a pop song and people are dancing, and that's enough. Uh, yeah. Well, it, I mean, right, definitely. Like, it feels, it feels good. Like, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's enjoyable, and I think that gets short shrift a lot of the time in our very our sort of very serious age of television, right? The age of, of Mad Men and Breaking Bad and uh, what have you, you know, The Shield and, and things like this. The post-Sopranos television renaissance. Uh, everything is so damn serious all the time that, I don't know, something like the, the, the Britney Spears episode is just fun. I mean, I will say that it is, it, it's an instance of, um, of uh, recreational drug use. This is what Ryan and I talked about, that there were kind of echoes of the... Um, the oh the one where they were distributing Sudafed to the kids or something sure. like that and it, it was having all these kind of amphetamine effects on them um, th- that this is like this is a performance enhancing drug or like a, a, a recreational drug I guess is is the way to put it where you go and get you know nitrous in order to have these trippy hallucinations with Britney Spears in them yeah and even more so I mean you guys probably did already talk about this. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been able to keep up with my podcast listening, but I'll go back and, and check. Because uh, Brittany, the, the character Brittany, undergoes a kind of epiphany while she's, uh, while she's tripping out, right? And this seems to have been actually permanent character development. Like, she, she's more self-assured now that she uh, had her vision quest from John Stamos's uh, nitrous oxide, sure. right? Yeah. 
Uncle Jesse taught her a lot about life. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> uh, Uncle Jesse. May I just say that, uh, that I really like his, uh, his new haircut better than his old full house haircut. Yeah. Oh, for sure. The mullet, the, the, you know, the, the pompadour mullet. Pom- yeah, the like... Pompa mulledor, the pompa, <laughs> yeah. pompa mullet. <laughs> pompa dullet. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we might've found an episode title. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Grilled, um, grilled cheeses. Oh yeah. Grilled uh, cheeses. Yeah, it's grilled Jesus. <laughs> what did what did you think? I mean, you're you're a person who has, I would say, like uh, more religion than I have. Not necessarily saying much. What did you think about that show's treatment of religion? Well, it's um, yeah, it's well, it's funny. The, you find it in a lot of television shows that there is this kind of very watered down. Um, the very watered down view of religion and the word that's used is not really religion. It tends to be faith. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to have faith in something. Uh, and wh- exactly what you have faith in is kind of left sort of nebulous, uh, which I think is, I'm, I, you know, I think that's a cop out um, uh, in storytelling terms. You know, you know what I mean? It's, it's like uh, you, you just have to have faith. Okay. I have faith. You win. <laughs> Your dad's alive, you know, and, and it, it's kind of like the force uh, rather than, you know, rather than religion. Um, if you were uh, to go to, you know, Mercedes Church, right, mm-hmm. to, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what denomination, but, you know, a black church with a gospel choir and, a you know, d- d- awesome hats, right? Mm-hmm. If you were to go to a place like that, you wouldn't just get a Simon and Garfunkel song, you know? There would be a lot that, that uh, goes into that experience. There'd be a lot of cultural context. There'd be a lot of kind of religious stuff, not all of which is entirely user-friendly to, um, to gay people. I mean, what, Kurt has a point in that, you know, all these Jesus freaks uh, hate who I am, you know? Yeah, right. I was I was wondering, like, wh- what if the reading that day was from Leviticus? Yeah, right? it was from Leviticus, like, like, lay not with a man as thou would a woman, you know? And, and and also, there's something kind of creepy about it from the other side that, uh, you know, those people have more to do with their Sunday than be a learning experience for the, the gentrified white guy, right? Well, that's Yeah, that's the fallacy of the, I mean, okay, yeah, gentrified white guy. Um, it would be as true in a synagogue or in a, you know, Anglican church with a, with a bunch of Anglos sitting yeah, around, you know, you're right. I, I should have said that they have more to do than be a learning experience for the atheist. Right? Yeah. Well, right. But it's, I, but it does put that, I, I think the race thing does put that point that you're making into, into sharp relief. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that he's a, 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 kind of a lily white face in a, in a sea of African-American faces. It's, um, uh, it, it does kind of uh, drive the point home uh, in a way. And this is the, uh, right, this is the, the fallacy of the fortunate cancer, right, mm-hmm. where, where um, the, the, li- the lives and kind of suffering and, you know, ups and downs of the minor character um, turn out to be valuable learning experiences for the main character, who, who, tends, to be, who tends to partake in privilege in, a w- in ways that the, the um, uh, minor characters don't, whether it's economically or, or racially or, you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. At the very least, kind of by definition, they have narrative privilege, which is sure. sort, of, uh, so, sort of interesting. If they don't have the other kinds... 
they are still privileged for the purposes of that story. That's I mean, that's that's interesting. That makes me think of Anne Frank, you know, Uh, and and how far are we willing to go with that? How far can we say that? Well, Anne Frank enjoys all kinds of privilege because there is a book about her. (laughs) <laughs> and she wrote it. So she exercises both the privilege of authorship and the privilege of being narrated about. I, I'm not sure uh, how much you can take that, how far you can take that. But, you know, I mean, fair enough. There is such a thing as, as narrative as narrative privilege. Let's say that it's a non-oppressive privilege, though. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, it's yeah, a privilege yeah. that, doesn't, um, that doesn't necessarily engage uh, issues of of oppression. But right so from the other side too, you know, like um Christian theology of whatever denomination uh you're in and it's, you know, it's it's Jewish and Christian. It's a little bit Jewish and mostly Christian in Glee. Um it has a lot to it, you know. And it's it's not all it's not all on the greatest hits album, but uh, there's a there's a kind of a richness. There's a body of of knowledge and of of scripture and of tradition and of beliefs and things like this. And having it having it reduced to uh, you know to a kind of hallmark card um, mm-hmm. is you know is not really fair is not really fair to the religious people um, either. I well, the interesting I, yeah. the interesting thing is that there have been attempts to do that in actual religious practice, right? Like there there are versions of religion out there that try to cut away all of kind of the, the naughty difficult stuff and leave you with a very kind of, you know, the the buddy Christ, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a CS Lewis book called mere Christianity. Uh, and by mere, he means, um, he means uh, not having to do with any of the uh, any of the particular practices, any of the kind of historically determined stuff. It's just mere Christianity, what is common to to all the denominations. And it's not, you know, it's funny. It, like, um, ask a British person about C.S. Lewis, and they will be vaguely embarrassed by him. You know, mm. uh, and and the kind of and how he how he kind of became a, a religious nut as his life went on. Um, ask any American uh, about C.S. Lewis, and they'll be like, "Oh, the great spiritual writer C.S. Lewis, the great Christian spiritual writer." <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> or, or or possibly, oh yeah, the book with the talking beavers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the guy who spells fawn in the funny way. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah. Uh the yeah, the idea of kind of stripping away anything that's um that's controversial. I guess there there has been I you know, I don't know. I think that um it sounds to me like a very American thing. Like like in America we live with the idea that we can get rid of our history. You know, that it's that it's possible to kind of invent practices out of whole cloth um and that we can sort of escape history. Uh, you know, and I, I think this is w- one of the things that uh, de Tocqueville touched on, um, and it's certainly one of the things that that Baudrillard touches on. And uh, and, and let me just say, to a certain degree, it's demonstrably uh, true, right? Like, who who could think that you could just invent a religion out of whole cloth and have Beck and Tom Cruise both join it later on, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. It's well. It, apparently, it works. I mean, apparently, you can you can do it. Um, I I was struck by how uh, how limp 
a lot of Finn's wishes, uh, you know what I mean, at the beginning are. If you have this, if you're, if you have this Faustian kind of device here, you know, if you can ask for anything, you know, why not ask for Helen of Troy? Why, why are you asking to touch Rachel's boob, you know, uh, USOB? That was a that was kind that's of a. That's under the sweater, over the bra. If you're uh, you know. <laughs> right, <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I kind of liked that all of his his prayers were these trifling little things. Um, it reminded me there's the same thing happens in Huckleberry Finn, right? Where he he decides to try praying for a while because he thinks that he can get stuff, and like and he does, but he uh, he like he 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 prays for five dollars and then he like finds three dollars or something like that, yeah. And then he decides that praying is not for him because he didn't get all the money he asked for. <laughs> it's sort of the same kind of thing that like he certainly doesn't take the the opportunity to grow as a person in any way, right? And he also doesn't take the opportunity to actually get anything really remarkable. Uh, he just like, you know, his, his desires stay trifling. And I think that's very kind of, kind of true and believable in some ways. Grilled Jesus. Now, what's really interesting is that this episode was aired like within a week of a episode of Community. Uh, do you watch that show? Yeah, I do. Yeah, right. The uh, the religion episode of Community was aired like suspiciously close to the religion episode of Glee, and it dealt with very similar issues in like a much much smarter way. I the, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Fill fill us in about that. So that like um, Chevy Chase is in what he describes as a Buddhist temple and what is obviously a dangerous cult, where like yeah. he you know he dresses up as a wizard and they they teach that when somebody dies their ashes are put into a lava lamp and then eventually there's like a bodily reincarnation and those ashes will be like transmuted into their perfect angelic form on a distant planet or something like that. Um, And Jeff, uh, you know, um, Joel McHale, who is an agnostic, I think, and uh, has recently sort of turned to the atheist because he's uh, realized that he himself is going to die, and this has made him bitter, has the ability to prove to uh, to Chevy Chase that this is not the case, because his mother, who has died, is not in the lava lamp, but actually down in the morgue. And he's, like, literally driving there to to destroy the guy's faith. Right. Um, and then they, they sort of, again, they have the, the hugging and touching at the end where he realizes, wait a minute, maybe destroying this guy's faith isn't a really good thing to do. Uh, but what was really interesting about it is that they're, they don't pull their punches, right? When someone says, well, I think that... Uh, you know, as, as someone who doesn't have faith, I think that your beliefs are ridiculous. They're not looking at beliefs that anyone watching isn't going to think are ridiculous because Pierce's religion is like it's a straw man religion sure. designed to be ridiculous. Yeah. So that's interesting to, to be willing to like to say that religion is ridiculous uh, on TV, you know. Kind well, of a shocking thing, you know. It's sure, it's surely as well. I mean, surely is the is the representative of Christianity on that show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, and they they play it a little softer with her. You know, they don't tend to call her faith ridiculous, but they still are saying that faith is ridiculous. And the juxtaposition of the two is a much like stronger indictment of religion than that one sort of nod on glee to the fact that some religious beliefs are bigoted. Um, you know, not 
Uh, and here I'm already like I'm I'm second guessing myself because I feel awkward saying that. But some of them are. If you if you look into various holy books, they will say things that are that are not nice, and we tend to ignore those parts, right? For sure. Um, then the the flip side of it though is that they point out how Jeff Winger, the character who is agnostic, has himself kind of a faith because he's taken really good care of his health all the time. And sort of the contract that he's worked out in his head is that if I never eat, you know, uh, a hot fudge sundae, I will then live forever. And when he learns that he has high cholesterol and that, like, he himself is going to die, it throws him into a panic. And I feel like that kind of panicked uh, absence that that kind of is there for people who don't have a God in their life. And I say this as myself, kind of an atheist, who every now and then will, like, run into this question of, like, well, I'm just going to die anyway, aren't I? And then what? Um, is, is, again, like, it, it engages with that issue in a way that the Glee episode was not really willing to do, right? Like, the, the problem for, uh, for Kurt, if he's going to not believe in God is not so much that there's no one who's going to magically come down and fix his father, because that's probably not going to happen anyway. The problem is that if you don't believe in an afterlife, when your father dies, he just goes in a box in the ground, right? Yeah. And that's kind of, they didn't spend a lot of time talking about that. But it's also, you know, it's also that the the moments while he is, the time while he is in a coma is really Mm -hmm. unbearable because there's no, you have no framework to kind of hang your hope on that is to say there's no one you can ask for a better mm-hmm. outcome uh right um and that at those moments of suffering there's nothing to do but suffer there's no there's no uh kind of set of practices for mitigating the suffering uh during times of uncertainty and mm-hmm. not just not you know not just after a trauma but during the kind of you know terrible slow motion lead up to a potential trauma and of course, I mean, it's not like there aren't secular versions of that out there, but uh, they, they don't tend to get talked about a lot in pop culture, right? No, it's, yeah, I mean, community is what, you know, it's making fun of, what it's making fun of is kind of the phenomenon that we're talking about of, of using religion as a, um, oh, I don't want to say crutch, but as a kind of ad hoc uh, uh, solve, you know, for, for how, how you happen to feel. That day, right, right. It's exactly what you said. The the faith that doesn't mean anything, but oh, you got to have faith, right? Sure. And like it, it sort of plays it both ways because at the end, Jeff decides to respect Pierce's crazy space religion because it is making him happy. But it's not just like, well, you need to have some kind of faith in something, and that will make you happy. It's that look, this is someone going through one of the most horrible things that it's possible to go through, the loss of a parent, right? Sure. And he believes something that I think is insane, but the, the comfort that it brings him is real. And therefore, you have to expect, you have to like give a certain amount of respect to the insane aspects of it because of the sort of utilitarian outcome of it makes him happier, right? Yeah. Which I, I feel like that's, I mean, it's, it's coming at the same, you end up in the same place, but you get there the honest way rather than the dishonest way. Well, yeah, Glee's, you know, Glee's affectionate look at us is, is kind of happy to let us persist in our delusions a lot of the time, whereas Communities, I think, isn't, you know? Like, right. it's, it's, look, yeah, okay, you know, however you get through the day, but it doesn't make us all any less uh, hypocritical uh, to do these <laughs> things we do. And Glee has a sense of, you said pulling its punches before, Glee has a sense of pulling its punches where it's, you know, Glee is content to kind of let us continue 
on our merry way, even after it's it's kind of parodied uh, some of the more hypocritical um, uh, things we do. Yeah, I will say Gui at its strongest has not pulled its punches. Like the the, the two wonderful. Uh, over-the-top melodramatic confrontations, one between uh, Finn and Kurt's dad and one between uh, Will and his wife, yeah. right? You know the things, the scenes I'm talking about. Yeah. Those, those are Glee not pulling its punches, and I wish that it did that kind of thing more often. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or, you know what, even uh, Artie and, and Tina breaking up. Yeah, you know? yeah, that was I, nice. You know, I, no, I don't, I don't actually have a stutter. What? You you were I mean that sense you know that sense of betrayal is real and to to sort of soft pedal it I think would not be fair uh, either to the characters or to the audience. Mm-hmm. And even even the the second Artie Tina breakup where she's like you're a terrible boyfriend and <laughs> therefore I am dumping you. All and you like, do is play <laughs> Xbox. Yeah. Well, and, and not even that, right? Like he, he plays Xbox and is mean to her, and therefore she's going to to go like hang with the guy with a wonderful body. She's yeah. not. You know, it's not that she's dumping him because like Chang has a wonderful body, but she's dumping him, and then this other thing also happened. Yeah, <laughs> like I thought and that. Why was not? That. I mean, you know, why not go with the with the guy with the the washboard abs, right? She's like, single. Yeah, since you're free. <laughs> <laughs> um, duets, uh, duets, and the the sort of Machiavellian, the sort of Machiavellian aspects of um, uh, of Rachel, you know, in. Um, This is funny, right? Like uh, uh, very often she's Machiavellian in her own – in service of her own interest. But but for this one, she uh, uh, is manipulating and scheming uh, in her own interest. But in the short term, it seems like uh, for someone someone else to win. Yeah. And this is something that's, that's pointed out on the episode. Yeah, the, the moment where uh, where Finn says like, but it does actually benefit you in the long run. I thought it was pretty cute. Yeah. Um, my question for you about this is, what did you think about the? Uh, and you can't see me right now, but I'm doing scare quotes with my hands. What did you think about the bad performance that uh, that Finn and Rachel do? <laughs> yeah, it's um, in the she was in the nun outfit, right? Or, I mean, almost no, she, she was in the priest. Her. He was in the priest outfit, and she was in the schoolgirl outfit. And then they sang this like this sexual song. Oh god! Uh, but that's not even really what I was talking about. Like it was, it was meant to be a bad performance, right? Yeah. Well, right. And, and, and rather than bad performance, look, you can't. Uh, this is like ugly people on television. Even the ugly people on television are fairly good looking. They have to be, you know. Right. You, why, why would you want to look at real ugly people all the time? Ride the subway <laughs> if you want to look at real ugly people all the time, right? Sometimes I ride on it, and you'll see real ugly people. Um, uh, and, you... and like uh, even when the the Glee Club was, you know, they had just formed, and we all all the, like every line in the show almost in the pilot is about how bad they are. And yet they're manifestly awesome, right, from day one. Yeah. And, and haven't, like, really remarkably improved in any way since then. Because, I mean, again, like, how can you? No one wants to hear an actual high school glee club. Uh, any listeners who are in actual high school glee clubs, I apologize, but this is, this is not a lie. Right? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Actually, no one really wants to hear a college glee club either. Yeah, in fact, in fact <laughs> no one really wants to hear choral music in general. Except, except, and this is, this is kind of an interesting thing, except for people who are themselves involved in its production, 
which is a large enough demographic that it still exists as a viable medium. I guess so. Well, yeah, I guess so. And that's why it's kind I mean, of kind of like blogs in that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's also it's like downtown theater. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, everything exactly. that goes on below 14th Street. Uh, yeah, everyone goes to each other's shows. Um, the. Uh, yeah. Oh, what was I going to say? Oh, Brittany and Santana uh, making out on the thing. This is um, this is sort of interesting. It's more what we call non-oriented sexuality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what what Ryan and I have called that. We uh, I don't know if we mentioned it on the podcast before, but Ryan and I were reading an article in a magazine that I think is in a journal called uh, Contexts. I believe it's called Contexts, which is a sociology journal about the emergence of of this, you know, hot girl on girl action. This um, it, it was based on a, a set of interviews that was done at uh, I think UC Santa Cruz. And <laughs> there's your first mistake right there. But uh, See, the thing you have to remember is that hot girl on hot, <laughs> hot girl on girl action is a discourse, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm not even lying because there there is a a person who speaks the hot girl on girl action and there is an audience that receives the hot girl on girl action. Yeah, that's right. To, <laughs> right. And this is like this is actually true when we're talking about it on Glee. Uh, yeah. Except, well, we're all very implicated in the in the um, the hot girl on girl action. Uh, yes, here it is. Um, it's the summer 2010 issue of Contexts, Volume 9, uh, Issue 3. Um, the article, I think, is called Straight Girls Kissing. And it's in a whole, um, it's in a whole bunch of, of sociological articles. Uh, is Hooking Up Bad for Young Women is another one. Uh, sex, Love, and Autonomy in the, in the Teenage Sleepover. Anyway, this uh, Straight Girls Kissing kind of... Um, it uh, it posits that there is there is this emerging provisional sexual category for young women um, where uh, they are sexually active with each other at various levels, whether it's it's just kissing or whether it advances beyond that to you know what necking or heavy petting or or full on um, <laughs> full on hot girl on girl action uh, that um, is different from being a lesbian. That it's that it's two straight girls engaged in this behavior forever, uh, uh, you know, for as friends, um, without uh, identifying as lesbian, without uh, feeling like they're a part of the queer community, and without um, uh, really forming long-term romantic, uh, intimate romantic attachments, um, despite the physical intimacy involved in the the um, sexual activity, and that. Um, and that this happens – that there are a couple of ways in which this happens. One is as a discourse you know, with a receiver. Uh, you know what I mean? Like we got drunk at a party and made out in front, on the dance floor in front of everybody or something like that. Um, and the other way that it happens is, uh, is sort of privately but still not, um, not so much that one's, uh, one identifies as being uh, uh, lesbian or, or queer. One identifies with the queer community. So th- this is – I mean – you know, this is sort of interesting to me that it, it seems like Glee is, um, I wouldn't say pushing the envelope because this is, this is, this is the envelope now. This is, uh, what seems to be going on, uh, mm-hmm. culturally, but, uh, it does seem like it's kind of parents television council unfriendly. And the fact that Glee is so apologetic, uh, and doesn't seem to make a big deal of it other than sort of, 
I guess, portraying it, I, I guess anything you portray, it, we're back to narrative privilege now, anything you portray, you are ipso facto making a big deal uh, of. But, um, you know, what, uh, Brittany and Santana aren't a relationship. I mean, what are they, aren't a romantic relationship. They're friends, right? And, and Santana even says, you know, this is, a, uh, this is a thing with instrumental benefits to me, right? Like, yeah, I, she my, says, I'm, what are I'm like a lizard. I need to lie on something warm or I can't digest my food, right? There's a great line. I don't know. That, that, that exchange had me wondering. I used to buy into exactly the account that you gave, that they sort of, they mess around with each other, but it's not a relationship. I felt like that uh, particular little exchange seemed to suggest that Brittany does want it to be a relationship, and Santana is not interested. Which it's going to be interesting to see if they they follow through on that, or whether it was just a clever line that they wanted an excuse to put in there. Which uh, which we will do that sometimes. And again, I think it's fine. Uh, they they haven't followed up on it yet, right? The next thing that we saw Brittany do is uh, is make a play for for Artie, right? Yeah, well, it's um, and and that I mean the status of that was kind of unclear. It it seemed like a uh, it seemed like a power play that it you know she thought he would be a a good partner for the duet. I don't mm. know why she thought that. He's not ever super featured as a singer on the show, but um, you know, uh, but it seems like she either fell for him or sort of grew a little more fond of him uh, so that when he um, called it off on account of, you know, he thought it was a cynical ploy on her part, uh, she seemed very hurt by that or at least seemed to realize that he was hurt by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and to to take some kind of account of that in a way that, uh, you know, the the Cheerios are not noted for doing. Sure. Yeah, and definitely the the scene of her pushing the meatball across the plate uh, with her nose was was flat out hilarious. It was it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, the yeah, it's not. She threads a tricky needle with that character, and I think the writers and the actress do a do a pretty good job with it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, between you know, because she's got to be a punchline a little bit because a show needs punchlines, but also you know, the, we we have this value that like we like three dimensional characters. We like characters with um, some of the complexity of actual people, uh, and that if someone is just there to be a punchline, they they sort of cease to be interesting to us. Mm-hmm. Right, and also, I mean, the fact that the sort of the the dumb blonde cheerleader is a stereotype, and like all stereotypes, a little bit obnoxious, right? It's uh, it, it makes it slightly more of a tricky dance, but they they've been pulling it off pretty well so far. Yeah, I agree. And it, and it would be a shame if. Oh, God. Uh, at that, uh, and really, there. Who knows? I mean, Artie is kind of taking advantage in a little bit. It's, uh, a little bit. It's kind of like, well, this blonde cheerleader is into me. I'm not super into her, except insofar as she's a hot blonde cheerleader, but. Okay, you know mm-hmm. I'm single. Yeah, yeah. Tina's with washboard abs, right? And to uh, to then sort of turn around and be like, you know, this is all on you, and I uh, I, I had no agency in what was happening. Yeah, is sure. perhaps a little bit, uh, you know, maybe maybe we don't want to give him that luxury. Although how again, you, it's yeah. Little... How dare you take advantage of me? Can't you see my wheelchair? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not totally fair to to Brittany, but yeah, no, she that the, you're right. I think that it seems to um, it seems to register with her. The uh, you know the the uh, Artie's hurt feelings seem to register. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like Don Draper saying I'm sorry, you know, uh, to uh, Doctor Miller in the in the recent season of Mad Men and and meaning it. Right? It's that's a new development for Don. 
Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, we, we can't actually erode this man's privilege. We can teach him the capacity of pain, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Rocky Horror. Yeah, re- re- real quick, right? Because you're on the clock. Uh, what, well, we got what, what 10, did you think? Minutes. Yeah. What, what did you think of Rocky Horror? Look, okay, <laughs> okay. Here's <laughs> here's a little background with me and Rocky Horror. I used to love going to this movie as a teenager, um, uh, right? And I would go to midnight showings at the New Art Theater in Los Angeles. They still do it to this day, Saturdays at midnight. I'm actually considering going this weekend. You know, the 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 eve of Halloween. Um, on the eve of Halloween. And, uh, and so I have, I have great affection for this movie and I actually think it's a pretty clever parody of uh, this kind of exploitation, you know, creature, sci-fi, horror, uh, slasher, you know, B-movie. Uh, so, right. so that that's your idea of what Rocky Horror is—is is that it's a parody of like of, of exploitation movies? Yeah, of, and it huh. really it it does all of them in there. It does it does the sex exploitation, it does the sci-fi, it does the um, the creature stuff with Rocky. Though I mean, it's you know it's an interesting reversal that the creature is this kind of beautiful blonde Greek god of a man rather than uh-huh. being a, a terrible thing. And it also does horror, like when um, when Frankenfurter slices Eddie up, uh, you know, to bits. That's <laughs> That's that's pretty raw that that bit it's it's awesome. Um mm-hmm. and and then you know it it has a it has a really I won't say ambiguous it has a really down ending, you know. It's uh that song uh superheroes uh that that ends the thing. Um uh you know crawling around on the planet's face a bunch of insects called the human race lost in time, lost in space and meaning. Uh, we used to say, where's your neck? Lost in time. What's the best show on TV besides Star Trek? Lost in space and <laughs> meaning. Uh, nice. those were two of the, two of the things. Anyway, I was, um, my girlfriend was, was annoyed with me. She kept shushing me cause I was doing the audience participation bits during the, uh, you know, during the, the glee, um, uh, reenactment, but there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about here. Yes. So I think that this movie as a film artifact is, uh, is a parody of several genres of, of exploitation movie that were then current or actually were actually a little out of date, even by the point that, that, that Rocky horror came around, but the culture that's grown up around it because it's, you know, because it's so edgy, because it's so, I, I won't say that it's boundary, boundary pushing, but it's unapologetic in its, um, desire to titillate you. Uh, the culture that's that's grown up around it has to do with being misfits and and kind of rebellion and um, you know sexual license and things like this. It famously begins with the striptease and the you know semi naked cast uh, at the live show like uh, reenacts the movie as the movie is playing and and you know things like this and everyone's getting high in the parking lot and and it was a great time. But the um, you know the idea. It gets conscripted into a different discourse, which is about art and the value of arts. And this is what I I find, and, and also I find it interesting that it's toned down, especially um, a lot of the the gender stuff. Right? Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania becomes I'm just a sweet transvestite from sensational Transylvania. Now, if Mercedes is singing that she's a transvestite, is, she, is the character supposed to be a man? I mean, is, is Mercedes, uh, the girl character, playing a man? Um, 
in in the thing and also to 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 touch me i want to be dirty was uh there there were some clever plays on what happens in the movie but it was not um uh, having Magenta and Columbia uh, there and having those two who are the sort of heterosocial, uh, sorry, the homosocial uh, couple of the Glee Club, right? Like have, having them there, that's what happens in the movie. It's, it's nice, mm-hmm. but it gets, it gets way the hell toned down. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was, I, I thought given a lot of the context of the show, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. And it actually sort of undercuts the, the point uh, that the episode is, is trying to make. But then again, the episode kind of pulls its punches about this doesn't it which is that like look there are just some things that these that are not appropriate for these kids and we can't we the responsible adults the teachers can't do them anyway that was a jumble of thoughts and ideas maybe you can make some yeah. sense of what it is. i mean I, I find part of it fascinating because i i have a spectators only uh perspective on rocky horror like i went to the thing once enjoyed it uh never went back so to hear someone talk about it who like really has been part of that scene is really fascinating to me. Um, what what, uh, what I found so bizarre about it about this uh, this episode is that they did a version of Rocky Horror that didn't include the audience participation. Basically, like there, it was referenced a couple of times. Like they threw toast at us, and you do have this one scene where uh, where Sue Sylvester is like you know snarking at their performance. And people tell her to shut up. Um, and, you know, that to me just it's not an accurate representation of what the thing is about. So I feel like the way that you uh, you behaved, like, to call out, I guess, I mean, it would be Sue Sylvester who has no, uh, no fucking neck, right? Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the man you are about to see has no fucking neck. And, and that, like, you know, what, uh, what your girlfriend was yelling at you for is maybe the, the right way to watch this episode. And I, I didn't do it myself, but maybe I'd have enjoyed it more if I had been throwing toast at the screen. <laughs> um, it, it Definitely, they pull some of the punches. It's definitely a little bit weird. Although, uh, I will say, Mercedes sang the hell out of that song. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite happy to watch her sing that as many times as they'll show it to me. Sure. But it's... Uh, the transgressive aspect of it, and I would say the transgressive aspect of Rocky Horror to me is that all of the all of the sex, all of the you know gender roles, all of the weirdness, all of that is so non-prurient, right? Like, I mean, you said that it's unapologetic and it's desire to titillate, but it's not really titillating because to be titillating, you need to have the kind of um, you need to have the the chaperone's voice in your head telling you like this is wrong, this is wrong. Um, and like, ooh, I can't believe I'm doing this thing that's so wrong. Sure. Like, I, I want to be dirty is kind of the, <laughs> the sentiment. Um, and th- th- that's like what a lot of – sometimes when you hear people talking about the erotic in art, it doesn't really mean like that which turns me on. It's that which has this sort of like, ooh, thrilling taboo. Someone's telling me what not to do and I'm doing it anyway kind of, uh, kind of aspect, which is why it tends to be a lot of stuff about like – Control and uh, authority, and you know, leather jackboots and all that. What Rocky Horror seems to be about fundamentally is creating a space in which those rules don't apply, so that you can have someone who is a you know a transsexual transvestite, which is in itself kind of confusing, right? Um, and and it's just like it's not really even that important to his character, you know. Like it's it's just all there, and everyone might as well be a transvestite. No, yeah, everyone it all, might it as well be matter. Yeah, right. 
right? It just doesn't matter. And well, everyone is, and there's this kind of pansexual, you know, he ends up sleeping with everybody in the Yeah, in the movie, right. Like right? literally everybody, which yeah. is which is kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and it, yeah, it's a there's there's a term for that, right? Uh, I can't remember. I was reading something about that uh, the crazy Alan Moore sex comic book that came out and made a big scandal a few years back. Lost Girls. Yeah, that's the one. Um, and someone referred to it as apparently this is the term in academic discourse is a pornotopia, which is a world in which everybody has sex with everybody, and once all of the sort of permutations have been run through, then the story ends. Sure. Um, and I feel like Rocky Horror, it's not a pornotopia. It's sort of like a kinkotopia. Yeah. Where, like, you just sort of, like, you run through them in this, like, in this way that's it's almost joyless, because it just becomes a litany. You know, it's it's like the, to bring it back to religion, it's like the the Bible books with all of the begats, right? Sure. Like, basically, you, you just sort of charge through it and then take a deep breath at the end. Um, and you just like you know pile uh, pile permutation upon yeah. permutation of like non-standard gender thing or S and M thing or nudity or whatever it might be, um, and then and then you sing some like peppy rock and roll song. Well, I'd I'd say that like I'd say that the music kind of sets it free. The music is where you kind of see the glee uh, mm-hmm. happening in it, and I think also. Um, uh, you know the sense that your parents didn't want you to be there or wouldn't really let you be there if if they really understood what was going on. You right. know, what right. I mean? and and also the audience participation, right? That means that you have a community of like-minded freaks, right? Sure. That you are now part of. Yeah. So you've said goodbye to your parents' world and like joined this other world. Which is why uh, I mean, which is why I distinguish between the movie itself as a as a work of cinema. You know what I mean? As a film artifact mm-hmm. and the the um, cultural meaning that is that is grown up around it because i think they're they're distinct and i think within the context of the cultural meaning you do have the you do have the erotic uh you do have uh someone's voice even if it's even if it's just an imagined person even if it's just an imagined the man you know well, and it almost always is yeah I mean, no one actually no one can imagine the man like teenagers can uh, <laughs> uh you know what i mean because the the idea that you know identity forming your own identity requires kind of pushing against uh an authority um, so, and if the authority is, uh, like, uh, we, we need to rebel and if we can't rebe- and if everyone, if all the adults around us are, are pretty easygoing and cool, then we'll make up, uh, something to rebel against, you know, what are you rebelling against? What have you got? Um, exactly. And exactly. that, you know, that's where it comes from. I, I will, I mean, I do have an experience watching the movie that at a certain point I reach a level of fatigue, you know, <laughs> I get exhausted. And I think that that jibes with, with what you're saying. Uh, I mean, I think I understand a little bit about what you're saying because uh it it's borne out by my by my own experience mm-hmm. and i you know what actually watching this episode i i sort of reached a level of fatigue as well you know because there are some great songs in that show but they're not all great songs mm-hmm. and you also don't need to listen to five choruses of hot patootie at the end uh mm-hmm. you know like surely one would do I, uh, I i have to say i was very taken with uh with getting to see uncle jesse rock out you know i was i was i was totally with them there I really liked, although I, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take your word for it that the the touch me number was kind of a travesty. I uh, I did think that it was interesting. I mean, like if, if you're into the plot of the show, it was horrible because it just shows Will being like an evil guy, just kind of out of character. 
but you know who, who, who watches Glee for the plot, right? He, um, um, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there, I thought there was no use getting into heavy sweating. It only leads to trouble and something forgetting or something. I forget what the lyric they had. The real lyric is: I thought uh, I thought there was no use getting into heavy petting. It only into heavy petting. It mm-hmm. only leads to trouble and seat wetting. Huh. Which wow. is, you know what I mean? Which is a totally different. Yeah, totally that, that, different. that's a little bit harder to broadcast before nine o'clock. I guess you know. <laughs> but I, I, but like, so. I did like the, the. This is the show that gave us sweet lady kisses, though. You know what I mean? And and I did like the uh, the sort of her uh, fantasy sequence at the end, where everybody is sort of, you know looming over her sexually in the most unappealing way possible, right? Like, the completely de-eroticized imaginary humping that goes on at the end of that sequence (laughs) was, I mean, it was off-putting and gross, but I, I'm I'm behind Glee being off-putting and gross. I like <laughs> that kind of thing. I, the uh, like the, the scene where Will tried to seduce Sue a few episodes back, right? I can't remember exactly when it was. For that sure. was that was off-putting and gross in the same way, and I, it's nice when it goes there. Yeah. I, it is. Well, hey, uh, I hope we're not reaching a point of fatigue with this podcast, but we'll wrap it up uh, for now. So let us know what you think, what your opinions of those episodes are. are were, we, were our rips on Glee, were our, some of our criticisms right, or are we way the hell off base? TFT podcast at overthinkingit.com or call and text 20 fat jog one That's 203-285-6401. I know it's abbreviated, Jordan, but thank you for coming on. It's really nice to have your voice back on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk about Glee. You know, uh, maybe, maybe I'll talk to Ryan one of these days too. <laughs> maybe, or maybe we'll just switch off doing Gossip Girl and Glee uh, on on this because we are we are this podcast. Though not all of its uh, not all of its podcasters, this podcast is very devoted to both shows. Very devoted to Gossip Girl. Very devoted to Glee, and in general, very devoted to these fucking teenagers. Teenage.